Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. In this episode I'm talking to Karen McKinley about her contemporary novel The Storytellers. Karen grew up in a mining town on the east coast of Scotland where her dad would return from the pit and fill her life with his tall tales and encourage her to tell her own. After living in Italy for a while and the birth of her daughters, she became a teacher, then head teacher. She took early retirement and now lives in Edinburgh where she writes and reviews books. In this episode, we discuss why receiving professional feedback gave her the confidence to query agents, how a difficult time in her life led to her finding her passion for writing again, and her honesty about finding the right novel idea. But first, here's Karen, with an excerpt from The Storytellers. Ronnie, Liverpool. Singles night. When conjoined, there can't be two more desperate words. Unless, of course, there's speed in dating. It's busy. Plenty of people dressed up in their peacock finery searching for connections. Hip-hop tunes blare through mists of discomfort. How will the lonely voices converse tonight? I'll need a few drinks to get through this. At least they've only got ten minutes each. I sip my pina colada and glance over at Mr Nobody Number One. The bar is sophisticated, dark and just the right side of expensive. His Primark sweater in bright purple is not. I promise myself an end to this. I never learn. Another sip of my drink, and Mr Nobody edges his chair that little bit closer. His breath reeks of beer. He better watch out. I bite. He tells me how frustrated he is. He's always horny, but he can't get it up. His girlfriend left him. She cheated, he says. It affected his confidence. I call him on his bullshit. He's not practising a hard on with me. At 40, I've heard every line. Has he bumbles an apology? I'm already thinking of chicken fried rice and getting home in time for casually. 
slouching back in my seat. I take a deep breath in preparation for Mr. Nobody Number Two. He has thick line braces that hold up plaid pantaloons. You can't call these trousers. These are billowing breeches, all tied up with an 80s lilac belt. His long-knotted beard is speckled with dregs of the salted nuts he's piling into his mouth. And as he talks, specks of brittle and half-eaten shells spurt out. They scatter around us. I try to be polite. Sincerely, I do. I pluck a pink umbrella from my drink and drain the glass as he drones on about his model train collection in intricate detail. I crack and crunch ice with my teeth. Then he produces a small gold case and retrieves a toothpick from it. It's sad, but I'm out. You'd think, as you get older, it would be easier to find the one, but it's not. Only the dregs are left. The dumped, the unwanted, Men who've been deemed unworthy by the rest of womankind. They should wear warnings slapped across their head. Cheater. Liar. Married. Peter Bloody Pan. A buzzer rings behind me, and a woman sheathed in pink shrills. Time's up. Move on. But that's the problem. I've been moving on for so very long. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you today about your debut novel, The Storytellers. Hi, So will you start by telling us what it's all about, please? Yeah, The Storytellers is about three women who are trapped in the afterlife. And they're forced by a man who calls himself the gatekeeper to back to their memories of their toxic past relationships with men. And they have to answer the ultimate question, what is love? And that way, they can move forwards. And it's such an original premise. I haven't read anything like it. So really, I want to know where this idea came from. How how did you come up with this idea as well to explore this purgatory or um, I don't know what you want to call it, an afterlife? Tell us how the idea came to you. Well, I've always, you know, adored reading you know, I can still remember as a child with a torch <laughs> under the bed covers, you know, reading till two, three in the morning. And as an insomniac, I always get lots more hours than everybody else to read. <laughs> and I love all genres, but my very favourite is speculative fiction. You know, things like um, The Time Traveller's Wife, Midnight Library, The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue, all those sort of things. So during the pandemic, I, you know, we had lots of time to reflect things and I was thinking about, you know, what's really important in life. And, you know, I thought, well, it's memories and relationships and love and, of course, death. Um, and my mother herself, you know, she died quite early, um, younger than I am just now. So I always feel like I'm on a sort of, you know, <laughs> on a ticking clock waiting for my time <laughs> to go. And I just thought, you know, what about if we had, you know, some women in the afterlife and being forced to actually examine their lives and the choices they made? And how did you come up with the purgatory or the afterlife as being a beach? Because there's a moment in the in the early chapters where one of your characters 
is having a kind of ordinary day and then suddenly is like sucked into this environment, can hear the waves. And then we learn that the afterlife is a beach, essentially. So how did that how did that come to you? Because I have never come across that idea before. I, I was stuck for ages on that. And I started researching all sort of different religions, you know, <laughs> looking to see what they how they described the afterlife. And then I thought about setting them on a train and I thought, you know, they could be in different compartments and trains. And I thought about the wood. And then it sort of came to me that a beach is like a border between land and sea. And the afterlife is a border between, you know, this life and the afterlife. And I thought that, you know, the location was quite apt for it. Mm. And also... I wanted the waves to sort of signify the, 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 the memories going back and forwards and the women being mesmerised by these memories and the waves mesmerising them into the sea. And I just thought it was quite apt for the, for the afterlife. And also it was quite good because as the book goes on, the, we're still on the beach, but things change on the beach as well. So it was quite a good location that you could, you know, change what it looked like what the beach actually looked like mm, and your descriptions are very visual I could really picture the characters on this beach thinking about what they'd been through in their lives so you've mentioned that your novel explores quite big topics about life and death but also about relationships and toxic relationships and there's pretty dark stuff in this novel about abuse and control what was it for you that was so important about writing about these subjects I wanted to write a love story, but then I think most women have have experienced a, a toxic relationship varying various levels. And if they haven't, they'll know somebody that has. You know, there's this myth that we all need a, a pinch harmon in our life, no matter what price we pay for that privilege. And these these stories about, you know, the guy that cheated or the guy that lied or the guy that said his wife was dead, who was very much alive. They, they become sort of dinner party stories. It, it becomes acceptable in culture that this is going to happen to you. And why should it? We start to water ourselves down as women, I think. We, we, we start to water down the effect that has on our self-esteem. But everybody's got a story to tell about how someone has done, done them bad. It's almost as though we water them down and, uh, to try and protect ourselves. And it's not us that should feel the shame. It's the, it's, it's the men that are, that are doing these things. And I just wanted to add my voice to that conversation. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the characters in your book, because chapters switch between their different points of view. So can you give us a bit more information about their lives and what they're going through? Well, let's take Ronnie. Ronnie is a, a head teacher. She ha- she has the same job as that I had before I retired because I wanted to write about things I actually knew, um, that so they could feel authentic. Uh, she's not the same kind of head teacher that I was, but <laughs> 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 uh, a little bit more feisty than me. <laughs> and she's just you know, she you know she wants to find the one, but her and her friends have just had so many bad experiences with men that. They just don't really believe anything anybody says anymore. They've got no trust. And her self-esteem is badly damaged. And then we have Nikki, who's uh, very young. uh, She's only about 18, 
very naive, very innocent. She works in bars and restaurants. She falls in love with an Italian waiter and goes over to Sicily with him. But, well, I won't say any more about what happens there. <laughs> Maybe guess. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> and then we have Mrs. Hawthorne, who's uh, in her late 60s, who is her father's not well um, and she's grieving. And she meets a widower who very much is in love with his dead wife. But they form a relationship and a bond and they fall in love and they plan to get married. And that's all I'll say before we step into spoiler territory. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I read that you had said you really wanted to write flawed characters that felt honest and felt real. Um, And when I was reading it, your voice in in the writing is so vivid and full of life and unfiltered and I wondered whether this voice was just something that came to you was it in your head or did you have to really kind of embody your characters to to get into this writing voice uh, thank you I um Ronnie's voice I found really easy to do uh, she just came to me this really bullshit feisty but very deeply flawed character um you know you may not even like her but she had a really strong voice Nikki it's quite hard when you're at this stage to think back to, you know, making a voice that's really young, that's 18 year old. But I'm lucky that I've got daughters and um, nieces. And, I, and I, I sort of thought about how, the, how they speak and how they react to things and, you know, that sort of innocent response it's, that is unfiltered, you know. And Mrs. Hawthorne was closer to my age, actually. <laughs> And I had to think a lot about a lot about her, about who she was as a person, and how did she feel, and what was she looking for, what was she wanting, you know, what was her 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 puzzle, and I, I did find quite often that it, that I'd be maybe writing about Ronnie, and then I would I would read it back and I'd be like, oh, that's not her voice, that's Mrs. Hawthorne's voice. So I'd have to change it again. <laughs> um, and the same with Nikki, you know, sometimes she would ver- she would say something that Mrs. Hawthorne would say as well. Uh, so it was quite hard for the three different characters to keep those voices separate. Mm. You know, it was suggested to me to do like the whole voice of one person at once, but I didn't do that because there's a lot of interaction between the three characters. So I had to see how they responded to each other in a previous chapter before I could write the next one. Mm. Yeah, it was it was difficult to keep them them separate at times, um, because you might think of something that was funny or something that's quite poignant that you wanted to write, um, and then I would swap it and give it to Mrs. Hawthorne because she had a, a she had a more deep understanding of some subject, whereas Nikki wouldn't have been able to probably access that. You as well as being a writer or a very prolific reader, and I know you also uh, review books as well, do you think that reviewing books helps you become a better writer? I mean, I can't sleep unless I I read first. I quite often spend hours and hours just sitting reading all night. (laughs) But it's fascinating to me now. It's When I'm reading them, I look at it differently when I'm reading now. Like I was reading a book by Emma Cooper a while ago and I was just reading along and then all of a sudden I started to cry, like proper tears running down my face. And I thought, wait a minute, 
how did she do this? <laughs> you know? So I, I went back, trying to be a writer. Mm. I went back to see, how did she do that? How did she make me cry like that just from nowhere? And I can't figure it out. I don't know how she did it. You know, I think it's great for showing you how other people have done things, how they've built scenes. But I um, recently, a couple of months ago, um, a new job working for a couple of literary scout agencies in London. So I write reports from, so I get books and uh, write reports for them. And that's been really fascinating um, because I'm having to report on voice, on world building, uh, structure, um, the narrative prose. And that, uh, you know, that alongside the training for that has given me a better insight into, you know, what makes a great book and, and, and what doesn't. You know, because this is writing reports for translations and TV and film rights. That has been really interesting. That job sounds absolutely fascinating, though. Um, a bit of a dream job, really, to to be um, reading other people's work and, and deciding whether there's potential there. Oh, I'm really, really privileged, and I take it very seriously. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about your writing background. And I heard you say in another interview that you never felt writing was a career that you could pursue or that was accessible to you, especially because you come from a working class background. So can you tell us how that changed for you and how you began to pursue writing? You know, my mum was always like, you know, you have to get a job. You have to, you know, get job, pay bills. And I was the first one in the in the family to go to university. And she, while she was really proud, she was also quite scared. She, so she was like, hmm, shouldn't you be getting a job? I mean, you know, there'll be awful clever people at that university. <laughs> and I wanted to be a teacher. You know, I was desperate to teach. I've done many, many jobs in my life, from cleaning to bar staff to nearly everything you can think of. But teaching was the one thing that I was good at. It was the thing that I absolutely loved and never felt like a job to me. Um, and although I always read, it didn't even enter my mind that I could write. You know, I didn't even think that, you know, that could be a possibility of a career because no one had ever told me it could be. And I just thought that that was not for me. You know, that not, not, I wasn't the kind of person that would be doing that. So I loved my career in teaching. But then my father took uh, suddenly very ill with pancreatic cancer. And he was told that he only had a few weeks to live. So I gave up teaching and came back to Edinburgh to live and um, got married and got very, very bored very, very quickly. 
and I've absolutely desperately missed the bustle and everything that goes with teaching you know every day was different you know the kids you know doing something and and I thought well, who am I now you know suddenly my children are dumping their children at my door and saying here gran <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like okay I love being a gran and I you know I love my grandchildren but is that all I am now? Is that it? Is this the end of my life? Am I just now waiting to die? You know, is that my life over? So I thought, right, I'll have to get an interest. So, you know, I tried the gym, absolutely hated it. <laughs> tried Zumba, absolutely hated it. Gardening, we've got a lovely garden. And I says, oh, sack the gardener, I'll do the garden. You know, within a month I was asking the gardener to come back. <laughs> Everything. My husband loves hill walking. I found out I don't. and there just there just was nothing and I and then I realized I'm actually just finding things all the time you know I'm still in that waiting room waiting to go and then there was a a short story competition from the Scottish Book Trust and it said the topic was the word of the leather and my my father was the biggest storyteller going you know he was a complete nutter blether um, and I could, you know, to this day, I don't know what is true and what isn't true. The stories that he's told me. And I was really, really grieving over my father's death. It was very sudden. I'd already lost my mother and I wasn't dealing with it very well. So I just put all my emotions into this short story and entered it into the competition and then was absolutely shocked when they published it in, the, in their anthology. And then I thought, maybe I could write. Maybe, you know, I could write. And my husband, Andy, said to me, don't you remember telling me that that was the one dream that you had never achieved? And I said, well, I must have buried that dream quite deep. (laughs) I wasn't even aware of it myself. And then I realised, yes, it is. (laughs) I just didn't ever dare dream that it could ever happen to me. So I just didn't pursue it. So then I started to write the storytellers uh, right after that. And that took about nine months. and then got an agent and book deal Mm, that's that's such an inspirational story and I I love that you discovered this or rediscovered this dream later in your life and and you just kind of went for it and entered this competition and I think sometimes it's just having the guts to put your work out there and be brave enough to to have these competitions and enter them and and hear back some feedback or win a prize or get printed in an anthology so tell us then about how you got your agent and your book deal. Did you go through the querying process? And I know you're, you're, the Storytellers is published with an independent publisher. So tell us how that all came about. So after I wrote about four chapters, I think it was, I wanted to know if it was any good. So I sent it off to, I had joined Jericho Writers and I was uh, making friends in Jericho Writers and swapping things back and forward with them, which was just absolutely brilliant. And then I decided to send it off for a formal critique. And I sent it off to uh, Laurie, Laurie Van Rensburg, who wrote Nobody But Us. And then I just sat there terrified for what she was going to respond. <laughs> and it was absolutely brilliant. She showed me everything I was doing wrong. The use of filter words, too many adverbs. <laughs> she looked at my synopsis and she said to me, you know, are you sure about this? Are you sure about that? And I learned so much and I wasn't working, you know, it was a pandemic. I didn't have children. Uh, I was, I had nothing else to do but write. 
so I just absolutely focused on, on, on what she was telling me to do to improve it. So I did. And then I sent it back to her about once I finished it and she read it again and she said, this is great. You know, you, it, this is good. So I thought, OK, so I'll start sending out. I, I did one to ones with Jericho writers with some agents at the very beginning as well. When there was only like about 5,000 words and a synopsis and a query letter. And so I had six full requests already waiting for the book to be finished. But that book took months. It took months before I was able to submit to the agents. So I submitted the full request to the agents that already requested it. And I queried about 40 others as well. Um, I didn't do this thing about do six and seven in batches. I'm too impatient. <laughs> <laughs> I had quite a lot of full requests, quite a lot of agent interest. But I had a, a, a call with uh, Claire Coombs at the Liverpool Lit Agency and I knew as soon as I spoke to her that the agent for me, one of the things that she said to me was, now listen, she says, we're fairly new at this point. If they're giving you an offer to represent you, take it. Don't come with me. And it was the fact that she said that to me that made me think, right, OK, I really trust you. Mm -hmm. you're going to tell me what's best for me uh, you know not what's best for you and she really really got the book and really loved it so I went with her and then she put it out on submission and Bloodhound picked it up uh, within I think it was four weeks of being out on submission. Tell us a little bit about Bloodhound and, and what what's been a highlight of working with an independent publisher for you? It's been great working with Bloodhound because it's it's really quite personal. You're you're a lot more involved than you would be a bigger publisher. Like I had input on my cover. At one point I, I thought I was going insane because they, they'd sent me quite a few different covers, which all looked great, but it wasn't how I'd envisioned the storytellers looking. Um, and they were just fantastic at that. You know, they worked alongside me until they got it, it right. They, they believed in, in me knowing what it, it should feel like. Um, and I'm not sure you would always get that. That's what's lovely about working with an independent. You get the individual support, you feel more like part of a family type thing. And you're, there's the, the relationship's closer. There's not this big barriers you people between you and your editor or you and the publisher. I wondered whether you've got anything that you think you've learnt being a debut author something that maybe if you could go back in time and tell yourself a year ago what what do you wish you you'd known before you started it's just you know nobody can prepare you for the emotions that you feel once your book's actually out there once you become a debut author but what's fantastic is we've, we're all in this debut author group. So other people can relate. Other people know what it's like, mm. you know, they because they, they feel the same as you. And that is just, it's just fabulous to know that other people understand what you're going through. They've either been through the journey or they're waiting to go through the journey. Yeah. My sister said to me, all right, I'll uh, go up to Asda's and get your book in. And, and I was like, my book's not on Asda. <laughs> you know, why not? And, and all those little things make you feel like a failure, you know, <laughs> even though you think you're doing okay. Um, but other people in the debut group understand that. And I think another thing, another thing that I didn't realise was that 
your goalposts are continually changing. One minute you want an agent, next minute you want a publisher, mm -hmm. next minute you want it in the bookshops, the next minute you want it on a list. <laughs> then you want, you know, it just continually changes. And it, this is probably me being a manic depressive or something, but you're lucky if you get a whole day of just being happy. <laughs> I know what you mean about the shifted goalposts and. It's it's funny how everyone seems to go through it. So like you said, the kind of having that community that can totally understand what it's like to be on cloud nine one minute and then feeling mm. despair the next minute. And I think we all do it, whether whether we're a bestseller or whether we're with a small publisher or a big publisher, everyone has that thing of you think, oh, well, I'm going to be happy when, and then when that thing mm. happens, you are then waiting for the next thing that you want. And it's a... It is a weird, it is a weird industry in that way because in a way maybe it's a good thing because it keeps you wanting more and it keeps you ambitious because you think, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna strive for this and aim for this. But at the same time, because it's always shifting, there's always that little niggly part of you that always wants more. Yeah, but at the same time, that's wrapping the feeling of being ungrateful and guilt because you know there's so many other writers that would love to be in your place. You, you you feel like you can't even really voice those 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 feelings and thoughts because it's selfish, mm. you know. But there's genuine feelings. Yeah, but then that's why it's important to have writers and a community that you can yeah. say these things to without feeling guilty, without feeling bad. Because we've all been through it. We all we all know it, and there's no there's no judgment and no shame when you're talking about these things because we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's reassuring to know that other people have been there. You think you're not you're okay, you're not going insane. Yeah. I want to touch on one of the really positives from your writing journey, and that's your reader response. And I know you've had some amazing reviews and you've had people get in touch with you to say that your books really moved them and that has been really affecting to them. Um so how has it been for you to hear from readers and to hear what they've they've gone through emotionally reading your book? Humbling. You know, I mean it's really beautiful when I wrote the book I wanted it to be somebody something that somebody might say that it touched them or it was beautiful and so many people have said that now that it is really humbling I'm just really grateful that people have understood what I was trying to write or what the message is that's in it to be perfectly honest the storytellers is a love letter to my youngest daughter and to see that other people have really enjoyed it and it's moved them and you know I've had people message me saying they've given it to their sisters they've given it to their friends other people have said every woman needs to read this it's just blown me away that people have understood why I wrote it and understand what the message is you know and I don't know I'm repeating myself now <laughs> but it, just, it really is mm. um it's just a wonderful feeling because I know what that feels like when I read a book that me, you know, it stays with me. Mm. So, Karen, what advice would you give to anyone that's working on their first novel or is thinking about writing a book? What would be your top bit of advice for them? I can only say the things that work for me, so they may not work for other people, but find your tribe, find a writing group that can support you, a writer that you can support each other and get as much feedback as you can on your writing and look to improve and secondly an early critique you know go to a professional and get an early critique on your first few chapters and your synopsis you will know then if you're on to the winner or not 
but you'll also learn how to make it better, you know, because it's all about making it better and stand out for, for each. And, you know, that doesn't work for everybody. For me, I, you know, I, I love to learn. I, I, I love feedback and critiques. I don't see them as being um, negative things. I see them as being positive. And, you know, if you're doubting yourself and thinking, are you good enough? Maybe try going for a, a, a formal critique. I mean, there's loads of authors that do them. Mm. And you can choose which bit, format best suits yourself. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and probably as well, I'd say, if you're looking to go to other authors for critiques, it's maybe quite useful to look for people who are writing in your genre or writing, writers you admire, because then you're yeah. hopefully getting advice that's going to really transform your writing process moving forward. Yeah. Finally, Karen, I want to know if you're writing anything new at the moment. No. No. <laughs> no ideas burning away. I wrote about a half of a book. Um about um I mean it might come back, who knows, but it's about a, it's about a couple of middle-aged women that meet at a Zumba class and decide to take revenge on their daughter's toxic boyfriends. Mm-hmm. But I, I started to find it a bit boring. And I wasn't in love with it like I was with the storytellers. And I thought, well, if I'm bored with it, then readers are going to be a bit bored with it. So I shelved it. And I'm waiting for an idea. <laughs> but I've been waiting a long time for an idea now. And it still hasn't arrived. Um, I'm really enjoying doing the work for the Scouts Agency. Um, but that doesn't help me get an idea. <laughs> um, so you, you wait, you're waiting for that next big idea. And I know that feeling. I am someone, I'm not a writer that has 500 ideas. I have to no. be in love with an idea before I'm, you know, it's, it's a big commitment to write a novel. And you've got to really love it because, you know, you know, Karen, as well as I do, that you've got to read it about 700 times and you've got to be mm. really invited into it. So there's no point, unless you're fully in love with the idea, there's no point in, in carrying on with it. So I think that if, even though it's a hard decision to, to stop with an idea, it's probably the right one if you're thinking you're not 100% happy with it. I'm just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel special to me. You know, I, you know, I could quite easily come up with ideas for books, but they wouldn't feel special to me, you know? Or I come up with an idea and somebody else has written it. That happens quite often. <laughs> I, I decided about a month ago that I'm just not going to worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if that, an idea will come to me eventually, oh. hopefully. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. My husband keeps saying to me that an idea will come. I said, you've been saying that for 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've just got to, you've got to you know, read and watch films and, and go out into the world. And I'm, and I'm sure you're doing all of that and something will come eventually. And I really look forward to, to reading it when it does, Karen. And <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And sorry for all the nervous giggles and everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. That was Karen McKinley talking about her contemporary novel, The Storytellers, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, 
which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.